0: You're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode, and if you haven't heard it yet, you're in for a real treat. And if you have heard it already, well then listen again because these are so packed with pearls, there's no way you remember everything. But if you still just need new episodes, well, head over to our Patreon where we've already released something like 16 to 18 brand new episodes and we're releasing two new ones every month. Plus you can join our Discord, hang out with the team, ask us questions. It's a lot of fun over there, patreon.com slash curbsiders. And we wanted to let you know that starting January 1st, 2024, VCU Health has let us know that they're gonna have to start charging a small fee for CME credit we understand why they need to do this, and we thank them for all the years of free CME credit for our listeners. We will continue to offer CME for episodes going forward through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. well, hello, Matthew. <laughs> hello, Stuart. We are here tonight, recording Hi. on nephrotic syndrome, nephritic syndrome, with our most popular guest of all time, the great Dr. Joel Toff. That's right. You're in luck. Before we get to that, and before we introduce you to our wonderful producer, uh, Paul Williams, are you here? And could you tell the audience what do we what do we do on this show? And maybe remind them uh, how they can get CME for it. Sure, Matt.
2: We are, as a gentle reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, We are joined by uh, Dr. Elena Gibson, who is going to tell us all about um, our esteemed guests, who you already know very well, and our topic. Um, But before we do that, I just want to remind you that we can provide CME credit for this episode, uh, courtesy of VCU Health Continuing Education. VCU Health is jointly credited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the healthcare team. Just go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to claim credit after you listen to the episode. And let me throw it to Dr. Gibson, who's going to tell us all about who we're talking to and what we are talking about.
3: Hello, Elena Gibson here. So today we have a really good conversation with the esteemed chair of nephrology here at cash Lack, dr joel top at kidney boy on twitter you might know him uh we talk about nephrotic versus nephritic syndrome the management and just the ever confusing difference between the two of those
1: hey paul you know in honor of <laughs> oh <God>. nephrotic <laughs> and nephritic syndrome do you know where you can find a bunch of proteins
2: this is going to be a long run for a short slide i can feel it no tell me Stuart. Yeah, where can you find a bunch of proteins
1: online gaming <laughs>
0: Oh <laughs> I don't hate that as much. I I liked it, Paul. <laughs> that was good. Joel, welcome back. We were just talking. this is your your 16th time on the show that is incredible. <laughs> uh, and I, I we don't know uh, we're beyond smoking jackets at this <laughs> point.
4: <laughs> well every, every appearance has been as special as the first one
0: <laughs> <laughs> this this is going to be a great topic let's start off with the pick of the week what are you
4: what are you digging these days uh, have you guys seen the television show counterpart no no i have not it is outstanding it is a uh, science fiction take it kind of recreates the story of the cold war it occurs uh-huh. in a future a future story of Berlin, uh, and it's all old-fashioned spycraft. It stars uh, J.K. Simmons, who is unbelievable in it. Oh, the best! Yeah, highly recommend it. Now, here's the catch: not on Amazon, not mm. on Netflix. You're gonna have to work to find it. But it's on Stars, looks like. Yeah, it's a do. It's a do not miss. Good. <laughs> Ugh, dagnap it.
1: <laughs> Maybe I can get a free. Stuart, you uh, might have to. <laughs> yeah, I might have to actually pony up for that one. This sounds like this is right down my alley. Yeah, it's really good. It kind of falls okay. on my pick of the week if I'm allowed to give one.
0: Go, uh, go <laughs> ahead, oh, <George>. oh yeah. <laughs> my pick of the week is uh,
1: the Blacklist. It's which, passive aggression. Yeah, it's <laughs> really a pick. <laughs> so my my pick of the week is uh, the Blacklist. It is available on on Netflix. I started watching it. I don't know a couple weeks ago. It stars James Spader. It's also kind of a FBI spy thriller type thing. It's there's nine seasons now over really? 150 episodes. So it's going to take a long time to get through it, but it's, it's a really good series. I like
4: it.
3: I watched <laughs> a few seasons of the blacklist.
4: It does fall down after a few seasons. Does it's it really, <laughs> it's really good. I would say three or four seasons. And then you well, can kind of, I'm on the second season.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Features a lot of hats and trench coats. Am I,
0: do I have that that's, right? You got it. Like that's that. Yes. Okay, great. James good, Bader. Bader. And
3: one relationship you really just can't figure out the whole time.
0: That's right. (laughs) Elena, what's your pick of the week?
3: Uh, So my pick of the week, I have been watching the tiny desk concerts, but they're doing an at home series. And so they have people perform in their own home. Uh, Some of the artists kind of deck it out or have their whole band, but other people just play. And it's really nice. If you want to watch it on your TV or just listen to it, the Michael Kiwanuka. I hope I said that right. Uh, uh episode is really good.
0: And for those of us who aren't cool, these would be <laughs> is this like a Jimmy Fallon thing? Is this like uh, a, or is this a is this like a YouTube thing? It's a YouTube thing. So tiny
3: desk concerts in general highly recommend, but usually they would have them come to the NPR studio and play in their studio. Hmm. It's just different bands. You can look it up on YouTube. I imagine you can just look it up on the internet as well. They probably have a website.
2: Okay,
0: Paul. What about you?
2: Well, I you know I guess since we're keeping with the theme of spycraft, I not I don't want to date the episode, but the world is still horrible. Um, everything <laughs> is awful, and so as I emotionally regress, I have found myself uh, really enjoying Legos. I'll just admit it here: I'm a, I'm a grown man who likes playing with Legos, oh, and Legos. it's fine. Um, but there is a Lego set. It's the 007, the Aston Martin. Yeah. Um, that's like over 2,000 pieces. It took me like a week to put together. So it's 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 nicely meditative if you just want to sort of not focus on anything else and you don't walk around barefoot in your home too much. Have, it is uh, the perfect combination of those things. So the the Lego Aston Martin would be a high recommend for somebody who doesn't anything better to do Have with their
1: you time. Uh, seen the Lego Mario sets? No. no.
2: No, that sounds amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah, they have a Lego Mario set that it's electronic and you like uh jump on Goombas and Koopas and it makes noises and stuff. You can set up an entire world. It's pretty cool actually.
2: All right, well now I know what I'm doing in 2021.
1: Fantastic. Yep, there you go. <laughs>
0: So let's get into a case. Elena, can you please, can you please read us the first case from Cashlac?
3: I can. So, Mr. Eddie Dima is a forty-two-year-old male with a past medical history. I knew
4: she was going to get through that name without laughing.
3: <laughs> I tried really <laughs> hard. It was really a hard. valiant effort. <laughs> Uh, So, it it was my best work. He has a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, and gout. He presents with one month of increased shortness of breath, chest tightness, and peripheral edema. His labs are notable for a creatinine of 2.5. Unfortunately, the only other creatinine you have is 0.8, but it's from 12 years ago. Uh, BUN is 36. CO2 is 18. Potassium, 3.7. Albumin, 2.1. His A1c that was last recorded was 6.8. His EKG is not notable for anything concerning for ischemic change in. His troponin and BMP are negative, so you're not as concerned about a cardiac cause of his edema. And then his UA was notable for greater than 500 protein and 5 RBCs. So thinking about what's going on in him... Uh, what should the initial evaluation for AKI with proteinuria include and how does that differ from AKI without proteinuria?
4: Right. So, I mean, you know, generally it's the approach to nephrotic syndrome is you've got three organs that you need to look at, right? You need to look at kidneys, heart, and liver. And, uh, you know, we don't have a history of any liver disease, but you just want to make sure you're not missing any cirrhosis as, as a cause of the one of the great adeptus states. And, um, you know, you want, you take a look at the heart, I guess we have, we're going to accept that the negative BNP is going to be good enough that we don't have cardiac, uh, causes. And then we do have a urinalysis with heavy proteinuria. And so this sounds like nephrotic syndrome. And in fact, he has, uh, Two of the criteria, he's got the he's got three of the criteria. Well, he's got proteinuria, but we haven't been able to define the absolute amount. But it looks like heavy proteinuria on dipstick. We have hypoalbuminuria. That's part two. We have edema, which is three. The only other uh, defining characteristic we would need would be an increased cholesterol. Um, and, and did I miss that, or is that we, do we not have that yet? Not yet. Not yet. Nope. Okay, so that be so you know. <laughs> You know, to uh, classically call this nephrotic syndrome, we need two steps. We need to quantify the protein, and there's a couple of different strategies for that, and we need to measure uh, the cholesterol. I I, Personally, I'm not sure how much of a difference that's going to make. This guy has got – well, he's got heavy proteinuria. looks like it's coming from the kidney. The real question and the real problem here is the most common cause – of nephrotic syndrome in the United States is diabetes. And whether this is just diabetes, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to minimize that. It's a huge problem. Or whether it's a more, I'm going to use the word interesting, a more interesting or rare cause uh, primary uh, kidney disease, or not even necessarily primary kidney disease, but some other kidney pathology that's causing the nephrotic syndrome is uh, a a difficult question, something that you're going to need to pursue.
2: And Joel, what does your... What does your history look like here? So we're we're framing this as uh, maybe an acute kidney injury with proteinuria, but this is someone who seems like they've been lost to care. We're not even really sure about the acuity of it. So when you're when you're trying to figure out chronicity and then more broadly what the patient's history, which elements of the patient's history are important when you're when you're discussing right? So to
4: determine whether it's acute or chronic, the best answer to that is what's the creatinine tomorrow, or if you can figure it out, what was creatinine yesterday? Right? Like, is the creatinine going to be two point five? Every day, then we've got pretty good evidence that this is chronic. And if it's 2.8 or 3 tomorrow, it looks like it's pretty much acute disease. Um, and, and this guy is a particular challenge, uh, because we don't, we have this big gap in the history. We have a creatinine from 12 years ago, and now we have a creatinine of 2.5, a normal creatinine from 12 years ago. And now we've got a guy with pretty significant kidney disease. And so that adds some problems to it. You know, if you had, you know, if this had been a more, uh, typical, Patient with diabetes that was getting regular follow up with their primary care doctor. One of the really important pieces of data is going to be, uh, that albuminuria that you're supposed to get yearly and the creatinine that you're supposed to get yearly. Cause when you get those, you know, especially, you know, if you think about the albuminuria, if the guy had, you know, 30, then 40, then 50, then 80, then 120 over consecutive years, that sounds like typical, um, uh, albuminuria of diabetes is that it, Gradually progresses, and it does it does accelerate to some degree, but you can kind of draw a pretty smooth curve from uh, small amounts of albuminuria to significant amounts of albuminuria. If and then if in the in the presence of that going you know thirty to fifty to eighty, it goes to twelve hundred, you know within a year. That's not diabetic disease. That's something else. Some other illness comes on and has changed this pattern of albuminuria. And so that's one of the important clues that we use to try to differentiate is this diabetic disease or is this something different?
1: What about if the if the patient, say, had relatively controlled diabetes and then went from relatively controlled just wildly out of control? Might you see a, a spike in proteinuria in that case, or would you still see an upward trend, like you're saying?
4: I, I don't I don't think so. And plus this guy runs in rolls in with an A1C, a 6.8, but, Right, you know, looks like he's, his his diabetes is certainly not out of control right now. Um but that's just not. They typically don't get these huge jumps in proteinuria in response to decreases decreased glycemic control.
0: Joel, I wanted to recap the the diagnosis of nephrotic syndrome and then go back to the proteinuria thing, quantifying it. So yeah. you mentioned you, proteinuria. You need that. You typically it's three point five grams in twenty four hours or on a spot protein creatinine, and maybe you can talk about that. What what we look for in the spot protein creatinine. So they need the proteinuria. Peripheral edema, low serum albumin, and then uh, what? What else am I missing from this? The hyperlipidemia you said. You yeah. said four criteria.
4: Yep, and okay. some some people will put a fifth criteria. They'll say hypercoagulable state, uh, but you know, hard to measure that. And so yeah. it's it's a, it's more of a characteristic of nephrotic syndrome rather than a defining uh, aspect of it. Right. Um. The, you know the four defining aspects are exactly what you said. You got the hypoalbuminemia. The edema, which is the only clinical sign, you have the um, proteinuria greater than three point five grams in twenty four hours, and what was the last one? We... Albumin, Al- a low albumin and high and high cholesterol. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I was reading. Patients may present with just like fatigue and this edema. I've I've seen it picked up where someone has a chest X ray and they have unexplained like effusions, and that that can kind of clue you in a little bit, but not necessarily classic, they, they always, on a test, they would say frothy
4: urine, right? Yeah. You get the, you get the foam of yours is the, is the, is the classic finding that's going to be highly dependent on the concentration of the urine. You know, the reason they usually will specify that it's a first morning urine is because that's, that's classically a very concentrated urine. And so you'll get the most foaminess there, but you talk to patients about this and, the, and they'll, they'll say they'll, they'll flush the toilet and the, and the foam doesn't go down. Like that's how much it flows. <laughs> oh, right. Wow. right. It really is. It, it sounds like a remarkable, a remarkable finding. Um, yeah, and I hope to see that someday, not, not for myself. <laughs> One of the kids that you don't love as much. <laughs> I mean, you have a lot of options. <laughs> but uh, and, and people and patients will be able to, you know, again, they'll be able to tell you, you know, all of a sudden this happened, right? And usually, you know, in these stories, it is a pretty sharp, if it's a, you know, acute GN, it's a pretty sharp moment. They're like, yeah, I remember it, it happened a month ago. It happened six weeks ago. You know, all of a sudden I had this swelling and I had this foamy urine.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Pattern. At Pattern, they give you a quick, simple way to compare and buy disability insurance. Busy doctors shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they're getting the best rates and discounts. Trying to research all your options and make the right decision while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. That's why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance they are buying they do this in three simple steps. First off, request your quotes online at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, secure your policy. So check disability insurance off your list today. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With huge discounts for doctors and training, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Again, that is patternlife.com slash curbsiders.
0: I know this is basic and we've probably covered this a little bit with you before, but the urinalysis that measures albumin, right? When you do the dipstick, that's when you see protein on a urinalysis, the dipstick is measuring albumin. Can you talk about how that differs from if you're sending a urine protein creatinine ratio or a yeah. urine albumin creatinine ratio?
4: Yeah. So, um, so you, you got it exactly right that the dipstick is just measuring albumin. And when you order a, a, a urine albumin, you're just measuring albumin and we, you know, when we're looking at diabetes, microvascular disease, risk for amputations, risk for cardiovascular disease, we love urine albumin. So one of the things about it is it's um, a urine albumin at one institution is comparable to a urine albumin at a different institution, that they're all standardized. So that's a huge advantage. While urine protein, none of that is standardized. And uh, the assay is just not nearly as accurate. And so it's a, it, if you're really trying to get precision, you want uh, to measure the urine albumin. And when you're looking at glomerular disease, when you're looking at glomerular pathology, the dominant protein in the urine is going to be albumin. And so that's a good proxy. Now, the one exception to that is going to be you have paraproteinemia. So if you've got multiple myeloma or amyloidosis that, you know, all bets are off. Um, but actually let me, let me step back a little bit. Amyloidosis that causes glomerular damage. The even though the amyloid itself could be a protein and it's not albumin, the the protein that's in the urine because of the al, uh, glomerular damage is albuminuria. A perfect example of that would be like a light chain deposition disease. This is the glomerular damage from multiple myeloma. Do they get paraproteins in the urine? Yeah, but the dominant protein is still albumin. Uh, that said. Uh, I know a lot of hospitals, they'll have a maximum urine albumin, maybe 600, and they don't go higher than that. And you'll see patients with, uh, uh, urine proteins of 24 grams in 24 hours, you know, 10, 15 grams, 16 grams in 24 hours. And you'll never be able to capture that with a urine albumin to creatinine ratio. You know, it'll just, it'll just say you're greater than some X number, 1200, 600, Jeez. whatever. And, yep. and, and you do know, and, and to, get more precision, you'll need to do a protein-to-creatinine ratio or the 24-hour urine.
0: Yeah. So if we suspect nephrotic syndrome, you it, it's pretty time-intensive, labor-intensive, and sometimes hard just to get the patient and the staff to collect 24 hours of urine. So I usually like to start with a urine protein-to-creatinine ratio. That Does that have to be like the first morning void sample? And can you talk about how that matches up with the 24-hour collection?
4: So the... It matches up pretty good. It's not perfect, uh, but the, the, the gold standard, the 24 hour urine is not perfect either, right? It's, it, and so, you know, this is a, this is a situation where we don't need that much precision, right? We're just trying, we're just trying to get, do they have a lot of proteinuria or a little bit? And so, uh, a protein to creatinine ratio is going to be fine if that ratio is greater than, uh, two grams per gram creatinine. Uh, that's abnor—that's you know, wildly abnormal proteinuria, not subtle, clearly indicative of glomerular damage. And if you don't have an explanation, you're going to go get a kidney biopsy to figure that out. Okay, around one gram. Well, there's a lot of things that cause one gram, and very few of them are going to be able. To, are you going to be able to change their course of their disease? You know, accepting other other. If there, if nothing else is abnormal, if the only thing you find on that urinalysis is about a gram of protein. Probably not going to find anything that you're going to be able to intervene on, and as that proteinuria goes up, more likely that you'll have something that you'll intervene on and more urgent to to get a specific diagnosis of what's causing that.
0: And Did I botch that, or is
4: that clear? Do you guys get Do you guys get that?
0: Yeah. I, I so if you order a urine protein creatinine ratio and it, the ratio is one, that's predicting on a 24 hour collection there would be one gram proteinuria, mm-hmm. and if the ratio is two, it's roughly predicting two grams on a 24 hour collection. You're saying as it as, as that ratio goes up, you get more and more worried there's heavy proteinuria. You're more likely there's something major going on. Yeah.
4: That shortcut of it being kind of equivalent gram for gram in a 24 hours is, is based on really faulty logic. The, the assumption yeah. there is that there's about a gram of creatinine in 24 hours and there's nowhere near, I mean, even, <laughs> you know, most people would be one and a half grams or more of 24 of creatinine in 24 hours. And so th- it's off by 40% right from the get go. So I, I I caution you with that. Mm-hmm. Analogy, though it's commonly used, it, it really doesn't hold up. Okay, but so but the lesson that you got there was exactly right, right? If that ratio is greater than two, you need to go further and explore that, and you know it needs to be you know closer to four or five for it to be greater than the three point five grams for this classic definition of nephrotic syndrome. Again, I think uh, some of that classic definition is less important. I think as kidney biopsies have gotten safer and safer, our reticence to stick a needle in a patient's kidney has got should also go down, right? We should be more likely to do this procedure as it gets safer and and as we have more things to offer patients with the results. And both of those are true. So question for you. One of the metr- the
1: measures that we, uh, like the quality measures that we're held accountable to is getting a albumin to creatinine ratio for a diabetic patients. Would you recommend even though it's not one of the quality measures that we're measured against getting a protein to creatinine ratio no. annually. Okay.
4: So, okay. But that, and that's a great point, Stuart, because there's a, there's a couple of situations where we really emphasize you need to check a protein to creatinine ratio. And mm-hmm. that's like that first evaluation of that patient. When you've got that protein area, and you're like, what is this? Could we be dealing with myeloma? And everybody's like, oh yeah, check a protein to creatinine ratio. That'll nicely separate out okay. your, whether it's, you know, albumin or a non albumin protein area. After you've done that, you want to go to the albumin because a, it's much more reliable. It's much mm-hmm. more standardized. It's it's gonna be re- it's gonna be much more comparable from year to year and month to month in the same patient, and more applicable in terms of predicting uh, future outcomes for that patient. We've talked about the Tangri risk formula. You know they don't ask for a protein to creatinine ratio. They're looking for an albumin to creatinine ratio because mm-hmm. that one is the most predictive of future kidney failure problems.
0: The urine protein when you measure a urine protein. Because you have albumin, you have globulin, uh then you have light chains, if they have a light chain disease, heavy chains does does the urine protein capture all of those things yeah, it's and that's a total protein
4: th- and that's part of the problem that why it's inaccurate is that getting an assay that covers all that all of that nitrogen is difficult mm-hmm. apparently okay. i i am you know this is what this is what I'm told and in fact you know we did a um we did a podcast this summer uh look there was an article in the annals that uh found a formula to convert protein to creatinine ratio to albuminuria and the authors of the article were like hey the point of this article is for people that don't have access to albumin to creatinine ratio this is not a free pass to measure protein to creatinine ratio this is not what we're trying to do we're just trying to be able to use this data instead of having it being unusable for large epidemiologic studies, now we have a way to convert it to albuminuria. But the ideal thing is to measure what doesn't need to be converted, which is the albumin to creatinine ratio.
2: All right. So I That's feel fun. like we're, we're right on the cusp of working up etiology here, like as we're sort of defining mm-hmm. nephrotic syndrome. Before we go there, I did want to ask about the physical examination. I'm not sure what everyone else's experience has been, but I often see nephrotic syndrome found for someone who's actually initially been diagnosed with heart failure, and the echo comes back, and it's stone cold normal. And it's like, "Well, it's heart failure, preserved ejection fraction, and you die and They do get kind of better, but it's, it's still they haven't quite cracked the cracked that case wide open. So I'm wondering, are, are there any other are there any physical examination findings or any really specific uh, historical features that might help us get it right the first time? Because I feel like it's almost always our second guess before we actually figure it out a lot of the times.
4: So. Right. So the you know the diabetic nephropathy is supposed to cause more of that facial edema compared to the heart failure, which is going to be very dependent in the lower extremities. Um, I'm not a good enough physical exam diagnostician to pick that up. Um, you know, uh, and I wish I had better answers for you. I'm not sure if I, I, I'm not sure if I do. Do you guys have any thoughts or clues?
0: I, I feel like it's almost like a, it's more of a diuretic resistance thing that in the, I haven't seen that many cases, but I've seen some of the cases I've seen where di, they had effusions, edema, and they were diuretic resistant and that sort of, and they, and like, like you said, Paul, they, they, yeah, they had, like, grade one diastolic dysfunction or something, but the heart <laughs> right, of the course. heart didn't look so yeah. bad that it explained how how bad they were feeling and how much edema they had. And they weren't getting no, better y- with diure- di- diuretics.
2: Right. Joel just actually made me feel better. As we know, the point of the show is to assuage my own guilt. So, yeah, <laughs> I think that's, that's – so that's fine. Like, it's usually, like, they don't respond. And then also, it's like, did anyone else notice their albumin like, one and a half? And then you're like, oh, wait, maybe we should actually chase that down, too. I feel like it, it always kind of comes up. Mm-hmm. Right. It's never our first guess, unfortunately. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's always my first guess. But I'm always but I'm but I'm equally disappointed, right? The guy's got an EF of twenty-five. I'm like, maybe it's nephrotic syndrome. No, no, it's the heart failure, Joel.
3: <laughs> what do you think about a fundoscopic exam in these patients?
4: Right. So what this this comes under the uh is there something that we can do to pick out the diabetic disease? Can we, can we find something that confirms that this is diabetic nephropathy rather than uh, some other exotic cause of nephrotic syndrome? And um, uh, retinopathy is pretty reliably consistent with the kind of classic Kimmelstein-Wilson lesions that we see with diabetic nephropathy in type 1 diabetics. But that's such a minority of the patients that we're seeing um, – it's not going to be super reliable here. And, you know, and just because you have diabetic nephropathy doesn't mean you're now immune to focal segmental glomerular sclerosis or, uh, membranous or the full panoply of other kidney diseases. So I'm not sure, uh, how much that gets you out of jail. Uh, it does, you know, if you have a, if the, if the rest of the picture is really looking like lining up with diabetic nephropathy, it is a consistent factor part of that story. And it does, it does reassure you. Um, but I don't think it's the, uh, the get-out-of-jail-free card that you hope it is.
3: So, Mr. Eddie he has a total protein-to-creatinine ratio that is 12 grams, so definitely consistent with nephrotic range protein, array, right? based on our yeah. discussion. Uh, he-
4: right. The line in the sand is 2, and he's 12. Yeah. It's just, it's just not even close, right? And, and, and I want to – just the other thing to, to remember is that the normal protein-to-creatinine ratio is 0.25, Right? He's 50 times higher than what he needs to be.
0: Yeah.
3: Can't be good. And his LDL is 120, uh, and he does have a history of diabetes. He wasn't on any statin, hadn't been in care for a while. He did have a fundoscopic exam as well, did not have any evidence of diabetic retinopathy. So just thinking about the workup and what you would do next to uh, work through the causes of nephrotic syndrome.
4: Right so in my mind I got a guy who's got well controlled A1C despite no medical care I just I'm really just dis- and and no other uh uh end organ damage evidence evidence of end organ damage that we can see besides this kidney uh with from the diabetes this guy seems to have diabetes in name only and he's got really heavy proteinuria, 12 grams. In my mind, I'm already thinking this guy needs a kidney biopsy. What I would do, you know, as we're waiting for the PT, PTT to come back is we usually try to, I, I like to do a serologic workup. Uh, you know, we'll check uh, sPep, uPep, make sure there's no myeloma. He's a little young for that. I, I don't see a hemoglobin, but again, you can kind of start to draw a picture. Does this look like multiple myeloma or not? Um ANA, look for lupus, uh, get hepatitis profile. So hepatitis B causes membranous. Hepatitis C causes uh, MPGN, uh, check an HIV or assess him for risk factors for HIV. However, choose to do that, uh, cause that can cause a collapsing FSGS. Um, C3 and C4 are more for a nephritic picture. Not super helpful here. He does, he does have some renal dysfunction, but there was no blood in the. Oh, five red cells in the urine. It's on the border of normal. I'm, I'm not. I'm not too concerned about it. Was his blood pressure reasonable?
3: Yeah, it was a little bit high, but it was like 150 systolic,
4: usually 140s. And when we got the next day's lab, did his creatinine go up or is this a kind of a stable creatinine picture?
3: It stayed about the same.
4: Right. So if it was again, if the creatinine was going up day by day, that starts to look like, hey, maybe we have a rapidly progressive GN, or maybe we're in the middle of some acute kidney injury. And that kind of widen. You're, you'll start to look at kind of a more of a nephritic picture, looking for ANCA's, complements, um, that type of thing. But it's sounding more like kind of a pure nephrotic syndrome. And so, yeah, s UPEP, pep ANA, hepatitis, uh, BC, HIV.
0: And Joel, um, you'd be looking at the urine. With the RBC question, it sounds like five is on the lower side. Yeah. Yeah. You- when, when you spin the urine, how often are you actually seeing casts or dysmorphic RBCs, which I know to look for on on exams when you're thinking about a nephritic <laughs> syndrome, but I don't know that I could pick them out. Uh, red cell casts maybe, but not the dysmorphic RBCs in a in its right. urine.
4: And so, yeah, in nephrotic syndrome, you can see the, the lipid droplets, the lipid-laden uh, droplets. Uh, if you have a polarizing light, that, uh, polarizing light you can see the uh, Maltese cross, um, and then, yeah, if it's glomerular bleeding, you should the uh, red cells should be dysmorphic, but the uh, sensitivity and specificity of those is less than you would want for something so difficult to find right mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I think it seems you're supposed to use a phase contrast micro- microscope I, I don't know what that is, but it sounds expensive, <laughs> right? Uh, okay, <laughs> we definitely so don't practice, have one.
0: so in practice, you're looking for microscopic hematuria on a dipstick
4: yeah and 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 I'll look you can see red cells, right? It's just mm-hmm. the, how reliable. Is it, can you rule out glomerular bleeding if they don't look dysmorphic to you? Probably not. Right. Um, And it's great when you see it. And it's, you know, it's one of those things kind of like after you have the diagnosis, you're like, see, and we knew from the UA. (laughs) (laughs) So the the framework
0: question for this, it sounds like, uh, is there any way that you think about this in buckets? Like, do you just, is it nephrotic syndrome, nephritic syndrome? Because there's a lot of these, they always get jumbled up in my mind. How do you start to put this together in yeah. practice? When you're yeah, I
4: mean this guy. This that. guy has this guy hits the nephrotic syndrome, and the next question is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in the United States in men is diabetes, and women is probably preeclampsia. But he's he's not pregnant, right? Uh, pretest probability of pregnancy very low, um, uh, so uh you know it, it's diabetes versus you know kind of the world all the other possibilities and the, and there's not that many possibilities right so it's going to be there's membranous there's fsgs there's uh minimal change disease um and then and then and those are those are kind of your your big ticket items mm-hmm. and then um you know then there's the the rare ones you know, fibrillary and immunotactoid is like twice in a career diagnosis for a you know <laughs> for, for a nephrologist, right? For someone who sees this, who gets referred this, it is incredibly rare. Um, uh, 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 light chain deposition disease, which is what we're going to pick up with our myeloma test, um, uh, amyloidosis, another you know one in a million diagnosis, but really uh, minimal change disease, FSGS. Uh, and membranous are gonna be your your big three mm-hmm. after your diabetes,
0: and those are like primary problems with the glomerulus mm-hmm. not versus like diabetes, amyloid. those are secondary. I don't know if you split them that way, but that's something I saw in some of the articles I was looking at where they just kind of think of it that way. there's the 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 ones that are like primary attacking the glomerulus or there's these other other issues, systemic things going on with the patients that you that you might think about.
4: So, the way I like to do it is I like to get the biopsy and get our pathologic diagnosis. Because what, if you get a pathologic diagnosis of membranous, then you have to answer the question, primary or secondary. If you get a pathologic diagnosis of focal segmental sclerosis, again, primary or secondary. I guess, and not, and, and, but even like a minimal change disease, you're going to think about, you know, could this be secondary to a lymphoma that I haven't picked up? Is this secondary to the NSAIDs that they're taking? That you go back and do a second review of systems and really ask them about, uh, over the counter NSAID use, right? So all of those is going to re- result in kind of a secondary, uh, uh, history and physical where you'll go in more focused now that you have your pathologic diagnosis. That's where I kind of do primary versus secondary. Um, you know, you'll pick up some of that, you know, if the ANA is positive, that's going to kind of, uh, Cage, how you look at the the biopsy and, and all these things will help the pathologist work towards a, a pathologic diagnosis. If you can give, if you can feed them these laboratory results, thank you.
3: And how does uh, hypertension fit in there?
4: So hypertension is not classically part of uh, nephrotic syndrome. They typically have normal blood pressure. Okay. Did we want to talk so what, about the mechanism of nephrotic syndrome? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because this stuff, because I, I mean, I, I was taught at, uh, which was, is called the underfill hypothesis, that the primary event is that they lose a lot of albumin, their albumin in the serum goes down, they lose oncotic pressure in the blood so that fluid flows out of the blood vessels into the interstitium, then their volume depleted, that activates the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, and then they get secondary sodium retention. And that the edema is from that movement of, of fluid from the blood compartment into the interstition due to the low oncotic pressure. That's what I was taught. And I think if you buzz most adult nephrologists, that's not what we accept today. And, I, and first of all, my, I'm old as dust. Is that, Elena, what were you taught in medical school?
3: No, that that's still what I was taught in medical still school. Still what you were taught. Yeah. Okay.
4: So that's the underfill hypothesis. And it's underfill because. The the movement of fluid results in a secondary activation of sodium retention. Okay, so that the volume depletion leads to sodium retention, and that's if you take take a look at a urine sodium in patients with nephrotic syndrome, it's incredibly low. You know, as low as it is in heart failure, and in fact. Urine sodium is always low in these edematous you know, uh, states. What is it in cirrhosis? Oh, very, very low. What is it in heart failure? Very, very low. And in nephrotic syndrome, very, very low. And that's how you retain the sodium and part of the edema process. The current probably dominant hypothesis, especially among adult nephrologists, is called the overfill hypothesis. And there, the idea is that there's a primary increase in sodium retention as part of your nephrotic syndrome. That when the kidney is diseased, it's going to increase its sodium retention. We've actually worked out the mechanism of that is actually there's plasminogen that's in the blood that gets activated that normally never gets filtered through the glomerulus. And now it abnormally gets filtered through the glomerulus because you have a bum, a bum glomerulus. That plasmin gets activated into. Oh, that plasminogen gets activated into plasmin and then it activates the epithelial sodium channel in the distal nephron. And so the last place you can reabsorb sodium is the distal nephron and all of a sudden this protein with reabsorb sodium called the epithelial sodium channel is going wild, reabsorbs a ton of sodium and that gets your primary reabsorption of sodium and then you get volume overloaded. Anytime you get volume overloaded, you'll get to, you, that'll lead to sodio- to, to edema. And there's a number of different um, experimental evidence to support that. Not only have we got the mechanism for sodium retention down, um, I, I, one of the really strong pieces of data is the treatment of minimal change disease, which is probably the most rewarding thing you get to do in nephrology, is you got a patient who comes in, they're miserable, they're up 30 kilograms with tons of edema, and you open up a bottle of prednisone, you waft it under their nose, that's usually enough, and they immediately – their minimal change just melts away Faster, like if you haven't follow up in a month, you've missed it because they'll come back and they're normal. Right? It's so fast, and they will their edema melts away before their albumin climbs, which kind of makes the as uh, the underfill hypothesis thing. You know, you'd have to have recover the the albumin first to pull that fluid back. That's not how it works. They diaries way faster than that, and so um, that's one of the one of the pieces. Of that. There's a number of uh, lines of logic. You know, one of the, one of the important ones is if your albumin falls, the underfill hypothesis says that the oncotic pressure in the plasma falls. But the real question is the difference between oncotic pressure in the plasma and the oncotic pressure in the interstitium. And it looks like where does the protein from the interstitium comes? Well, it comes from the plasma. And so as the albumin falls in the plasma, the albumin falls in the interstitium also. And the delta of the osmotic pressure between those two compartments doesn't change. And so you don't. And what you need is you need to have a lot less osmotic pressure in the capillary, so you get net fluid flowing out of the capillary. And we just don't see that when we actually measure it. Regardless, it it looks like it's the overfill hypothesis is the one that's generally accepted. From what I understand, pediatricians kind of they're on the fence a little bit more.
3: So albumin is not the answer. Yes, (laughs)
4: Yes, <laughs> albumin, that's exactly right. Right, you immediately come to the, the and and in fact, that's backed up by pretty consistent data that the use of albumin to improve uh, diuresis in, uh, in nephrotic syndrome it just doesn't work, especially in adults. Again, there's some data in kids, but the kids, it's like it seems to work well, but they have a lot of complications. There's a lot of hypertension from them, and so maybe not as not as good as you would hope but yeah albumin infusions to spur diuresis not very effective but but because the we've actually localized where the sodium retention is which is this enac receptor that's the receptor that we block with amiloride so this like potassium sparing diuretic that we like never use all of a sudden, it takes center stage in nephrotic syndrome. There's not as much clinical data as I'd like to see. It's a lot of kind of case reports here and there. Um, uh, most people just kind of rely on loop diuretics to to do the diuresis, but amiloride makes sense.
3: All right. So, just bringing us back to the case and thinking about what we would do for the workup of nephrotic syndrome. What lab workup would you send, or any other? Test you would want to know.
4: So this patient is going to get a biopsy. So we're going to get coags. We're going to get a CBC. We're going to also we're going to start a serologic workup. What some of the lab tests that we do to evaluate nephrotic syndrome? We'll check sPep and uPep to look for multiple myeloma. We'll look at ANA to look for lupus. We'll get Hep B, Hep C, and HIV. Mm-hmm. All of those. You know uh, those viral diseases can cause membranous or membranoproliferative GN, so we want to evaluate for those. Following um, you so far, okay. One of the newer tests is this anti-PLA2R, and this is a huge breakthrough. I think it's 2009, but it is the um, it's the discovery of the antigen that's responsible for about 70 to 80 percent of idiopathic membranous, and it ends up being. Not only is it good for diagnosis, it's good for prognosis, and it's good for monitoring therapy. It's kind of the it's kind of a home run. It's exactly what you want for a um, biological marker. So, who's who's ordering the the PLA two R? Is that the nephrologist? I've never ordered one before. Yeah, I, I, this I, it, it's specific enough that this can be a nephrology only. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> The nephrologist calls the intern and asks them to order a PLA-2R. <laughs> right. Because when the nephrologist exactly. orders it
4: himself, he gets called by the chief of the, the program director <laughs> telling them that you're not allowed to write orders on our patients. That he yeah,
0: exactly. needs to have the intern write
4: it. It looks like plazer. I love that. Anti-PLA-2R.
1: And, then,
0: and we, t- we talked – so if this was more of a nephritic picture, sometimes I see people throwing the compliments in there, Joel. If this is more of a nephritic picture, more heavy – uh, hematuria. You would you would order.
4: Yeah, if you start to have a nephritic picture and, remi- and a reminder that's going to have hematuria, kidney injury, acute kidney injury, and hypertension. Those are the three elements of nephritis. And in that situation, yeah, you're going to C3, C4, maybe a CH50. Um, you're going to order ANCA's. Uh, it'll be a bit, uh, you know, slightly different. Okay,
0: and we'll get into that a little bit more on the second case. Let's let's say this guy gets his kidney biopsy. Elena, do we have the results of that for this case?
3: Yes, we do. And he kind of first some news on his serologies. His PLA two R was actually positive. And,
4: and did we have that before the biopsy? Let's it was yes.
3: before the biopsy. Yes. So, would you still think he needs a biopsy?
4: Right. And so, honestly, the data on uh, anti-PLA two R is so good. I think there will be a future when we will not need a biopsy. That's not today. And right now, the point where the debate is, is if you have a patient with perfect kidney function, no other history, no other possible differential, and you have a positive anti-PLA-2R, can you then just proceed with treatment? And I think it's a reasonable argument to say yes, that you could go on to treatment for membranous just based on anti-PLA-2R in the kind of the perfect patient. This guy's not the perfect patient. He's got diabetes. He's got an elevated creatinine. I don't think anybody at this time in 2020 is pushing to treat membranous based on anti-PLA-2R in this patient.
0: Yeah, because he also had like very mild hematuria, right? The, the, and he's got hypertension. Maybe that's just because he's not on anything, and he and he just has essential hypertension. So it, it's a little bit of a muddy picture here. Yeah. All right. So I guess we've we've pretty much made our diagnosis now. Uh, he did get a did biopsy. We, no, did we make the we okay, have a biopsy? Yeah. So, yeah. so what does the biopsy show?
3: Uh, it was consistent with membranous nephropathy. And so he was started on treatment for that uh, with steroids and cyclophosphamide.
4: Excellent. Yeah. So steroids and cyclophosphamide are, are the kind of the uh, the traditional highest evidence level uh, therapy for this. It's what's recommended in the KDIGO guidelines. I think you find a lot of nephrologists trying to avoid cyclophosphamide. It does have uh, significant toxicity, especially long term toxicity that these patients can get. Uh, uroepithelial cancers, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, which are make everybody a bit nervous. Um, and there's pretty good response to rituximab. Uh, but just maybe a month ago, uh, maybe two months by the time this podcast comes out was a study called Starman, I think it's called Starman or Starman, that was uh, cyclophosphamide plus steroids, which is what our patient got versus rituximab and I think azithromycin, I think is what it was. I'm not sure what the secondary treatment in addition to rituximab is by memory, but the cyclophosphamide beat the pants off of it. It was really impressive how much better cyclophosphamide was. Um, and I think it surprised a lot of people because rituximab had really been in just about every other GN had really done a, an excellent job and was, you know, considered low risk uh, in terms of side effects. Uh, but it was pretty clear in this study that, uh, the site, the old, the old faithful, uh, is still the champ.
0: What are we going to do for Eddie's, uh, his edema, his cholesterol is a little bit elevated. He's, he's hypertensive. How would we treat? And he's got this heavy, heavy proteinuria. So what are, let's talk about the general management things for this, this patient with
4: nephrotic syndrome. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so the, okay. I guess there's three things. There's three aspects you want to go through. So uh, treating the edema, uh, you've got all the tools. I mean, uh, yeah, as an internist, you're comfortable with loop diuretics. You know, that's what you're going to go with first. It's it may take higher doses. These patients tend to be pretty uh, diuretic resistant, so just lean into it, and you will eventually get them to pee. Uh, uh, like we talked about when we talked about the mechanism. Adding amylaride, the potassium sparing diuretic may be really helpful. There's certainly case reports where it does make a remarkable difference. Uh, so that's definitely something to consider if you're having a lot of difficulty. Um, but you know, and patients will really, they appreciate it. I mean, you know, you get that the, the, uh, edema better and they, they just love you for that. The next thing you talked about was the cholesterol guidelines say if they're having nephrotic syndrome, they need to be on a statin. You know, we see see these patients have a high rate of cardiovascular disease. We don't have, well, I don't think we have any data that shows that it improves anything but a number. I don't think we have the outcomes data that you'd want to see, but these patients are at high cardiovascular risk. And that's usually all we need to uh, recommend uh, patients get a statin. And then, you know, the the question is, you know, what happens if they go into, if the disease goes away, if they go into remission, um, I, I pretty much kind of don't feel like they need it if they didn't need it before, and their cholesterol's normal and their proteinuria is gone, which was driving the cholesterol. I'm I stop it. I don't know if that's absolutely the right thing to do. Um The KDIGO guidelines say everybody over fifty who has CKD needs to be on a statin. This guy's a little bit younger than that.
0: So I think the other thing was the proteinuria. So Aces, ARBs. I read spironolactone. Is that can you tell us like what should be our first and second line for for that?
4: Yeah. So, um, uh, every, you know, ACE inhibitor should be, you know, if they have hypertension, they should all get on an ACE inhibitor. That's part of conservative therapy for anybody who's got proteinuria and this GNs are included and the less proteinuria they have, the better their outcomes. And so absolutely they should be put on an ACE inhibitor. They should not be put on an ACE and ARB. We've got good data, uh, pointing to increased, uh, Uh, complications, acute kidney injury, and hyperkalemia primarily. And in those studies, they didn't show improved cardiovascular outcomes. And we don't have data that shows improved GN outcomes either. So I would use, pick one, an ACE or an ARB. Um, And I'm nervous about adding uh, spironolactone to those. It does have additional antiprotein effects. But given the lack of good outcomes from ACE and ARBs, I'd be nervous about adding spironolactone in the situation. Again, I do it, but mainly in patients where I can't control the blood pressure otherwise. And I don't know if I'm doing the patient any good. It's what I do. Um, but I think the the data might be a little thin on that.
0: Okay. And I think maybe the final thing is the anticoagulation.
4: Yeah. 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 And so this you know we know that patients that have nephrotic syndrome are at increased risk for venous thrombosis. Uh, there's also evidence that there're increased risk of arterial thrombosis, but most of the data is on the, the venous side. And um, in particular that high risk is worse in patients with membranous like he has. And his disease is pretty severe. His albumin is down to 2.1, which is probably the best way to measure the severity of the disease, is looking at that albumin and so, uh, KDCO guidelines say if they have some increased risk factor for thrombosis. So that'd be a, you know, a heavy proteinuria greater than 20, uh, greater than 10 grams, BMI greater than 35, family history of thromboembolism, heart failure, stage three or th- stage four, or recent surgery or prolonged immobilization, you should anticoagulate them if they have got gotten albumin between two and two and a half. And so you qualify. He's got the heavy proteinuria. What is his was twelve grams, and he's got um, and he's got uh, albumin at two one, and so uh, just uh, warfarin is the recommended drug for anticoagulation. There,
3: it's helpful.
2: And in this pensive silence, I guess I want to ask: <laughs> Would you? Is it possible to prognosticate, generally speaking, about how how someone's going to do, sort of based on the underlying etiology of the nephrotic syndrome? So, who's going to do badly? And progressed end-stage renal disease. Who has a chance for good recovery? Can you can you talk broadly about the how? Yeah, so we can
4: go the, you know, so there's uh, the four diagnoses, right? So diabetic nephropathy, so classic diabetic nephropathy causing nephrotic syndrome has a terrible prognosis. Those patients are going to do, they're going to lose, you know, four to six milliliters per minute of uh, kidney function per year, and so in ten years they're going to lose sixty milliliters per minute of GFR, and that will usually be enough to put them on dialysis. Okay. So that's a, that's a bad one. And you'll put them on an SGLT2 inhibitor and maybe you'll put them on finerenone. and you'll give them, you'll go full court press and you'll see what you can do and try to minimize that as much as you can and stretch that out. But it's not a good look. Uh. Minimal change disease has an excellent prognosis. Those patients respond briskly to steroids. It's super rewarding to treat those patients. Um, you know, honestly, if we if we wanted to get a lot of medical students interested in in uh, nephrology, all we need to do is have a, a minimal change disease clinic. It's really, a, it's just, it's amazing. Um, and they have an they have an excellent prognosis. They all go into remission. There's a pretty high rate of relapse, uh, will eventually have an episode of relapse, but even those, uh, those oftentimes will, or usually most times respond equally well to steroids the second time around. And so it's just how frequently they relapse. Um, and so, you know, even though that sounds bad for the patients, you get the reward of fixing them again.
2: (laughs) And who have steroids ever heard? (laughs) Good point.
4: So, uh, (laughs) And so that's minimal change. It's generally good prognosis. Then there's a uh, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, not so great. Uh, about 50% of those patients will end up on dialysis in 10 years. And, um, and, and a f- pretty significant portion of the other half will follow them onto dialysis in more than 10 years. So it's a pretty bad disease. Um, and the treatment options are not great. We throw steroids at a lot of those patients and it, Sometimes works a little bit and very rarely works well, but it's it's not a great therapy uh We'll also use uh calcineurin inhibitors like uh cyclosporin or tacrolimus in that, and that works a little bit not great also new therapies are on the uh horizon for that, so that's something that's uh it's worth exploring. And if you don't have access to experimental therapies, getting your patients to a tertiary care center that does, because like I said, there are new experimental therapies for FSGS that we did not have previously. And then membranous is uh, the other big category uh, here. Uh, This is what our patients has. And the the classic teaching that I was taught in medical school actually kind of holds up that about a, a third of them will have spontaneous remission disease just goes away. It seems to be no problem. A third of them kind of have this kind of smoldering proteinuria that just lasts and lasts, but their kidney re- state function remains relatively stable. And then a third of them have pretty aggressive, progressive disease. Um, and, but the good news is that the disease is pretty amenable to treatment. So the the patient, the treatment that this patient got with um, cyclophosphamide and steroids Works pretty well, and if you can get the patients into remission, they do very well. And that's that's the whole key—just getting them into remission. And remission's can be their protein proteinuria goes away, or it goes to less than half a gram.
0: Joel, before we leave Eddie in this case, what are you going to tell him about dietary protein intake? Are you gonna, do you believe in this whole zero point eight to one gram per kilogram per day? And the Fluid restriction, salt restriction—is that something
4: that you you tell patients with nephrotic syndrome? So the salt restriction, I think, is important. So most of the data on ACE inhibitors was done with concurrent salt uh, sodium restriction. So I'd want to advise them to do that. That's going to be a, a good way for them to help control the edema. Um, I'm not a believer in lowering the albumin in their diet. Their low protein diets. I'm not convinced. And that's my opinion. I think the guidelines say uh, go down to 0.8. That's the recommended uh, guidance. So that's probably what you should do and certainly the right answer on the test. Hmm.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay. I just have a quick question. So if they have underlying, say it's HIV and FI- FSGS or hepatitis, are you treating the viral
4: yeah, cause? That's, what, or are you- that's 100%. So, okay. Um, so the problem – So. Uh, hepatitis B causes the most more smoldering disease. That tends to be associated with membranous. And if you treat the virus, the membranous goes away. Okay. And the hepatitis C also. That te- typically causes a membranoproliferative, GN. Uh, and again, if you treat the virus, the GN goes away. The HIV disease is super aggressive. It causes a collapsing FSGS. That's a permanent scar on the kidney, and you can get them to zero viral load, and the kidney doesn't recover.
0: Okay. Makes sense. All right. Elena, why don't you bring us to the next case?
3: Got it, Matt. So, Ms. Red, she's 38 years old, uh, presents to the ED from clinic for evaluation of an AKI and a headache. She had gone to clinic where they checked some labs, which were notable for creatinine of 3.1. Her baseline was around one a month prior to that. Her BUN was 56. Her blood pressure was 187 over 105 in the emergency department. She denied any history of hypertension or kidney disease, but she did have a history of headaches and a fever, that initially led her to go to the her primary care clinic in the first place about a month ago. Uh, her UA and the ED is notable for a protein of 136 RBCs and 22 white blood cells. She also has a few bacteria. So thinking about the cause of her AKI, what findings on a UA are most concerning for glomerulonephritis and? How is urine microscopy useful beyond that?
4: Yeah. I mean, so uh, yeah, this doesn't, sound, this doesn't sound good at all. So you've got a patient who had a creatinine of one a month ago, and now has got a creatinine of 3.1. So they've lost two-thirds of their kidney function. Um, they're hypertensive. They got hematuria. They got pyuria. Um, and they got proteinuria. And all of this is new. The urinalysis findings weren't there previously, I presume.
3: No, they weren't. She didn't. She only had like a UA from a few years ago, and she thought she had a UTI, but they weren't there at that point.
4: And they weren't there, yeah. So the, I mean, this this is, um, yeah. So it's a it's acute kidney injury in the uh, ED, and so you know, pretest probably just taking all comers. Most likely, it's going to be pre renal, and so you're going to want to make sure you want to give her fluids overnight, but. Um, yeah, you know, actually you're not going to give this patient fluids, right? So you got a blood pressure of 187 over 105. For the last patient, the last thing this patient needs is a, is a couple of liters of saline. Um, so, you know, this, this, this looks like, uh, a, a, a GN. It really does. Um, we have, she's got uh, all the characteristics. She's got the renal failure. She's got the hypertension and she's got hematurian pyuria. And, uh, yeah. So look, it looks like a nephritis, uh, from the, from the get go. And then, uh, you know, what what can you get from the microscopy? Like looking at this urine on the micro- microscope, you know, this you would expect to see red cell casts if this was uh, was a glomerulonephritis.
3: So you do a urine microscopy. Mm-hmm. She has some dysmorphic red blood cells mm-hmm. and granular casts. Mm-hmm. Although I did spin her urine, so no promises on the sensitivity <laughs> there. <laughs> Strong work. Uh, and her physical exam is notable for. Uh, a friction rub on her cardiovascular exam. Her pulmonary exam is normal, maybe some decreased breath sounds in the bases. She doesn't have any rash or edema. So now that you're thinking she has GN, how do you categorize the differential and start to think think about working it up?
4: Right, so you know the friction rub does. You know, uh, serositis is part of the lupus, uh, and you know you have young woman, so that that's a nice fit as a possible uh, diagnosis there. Um, in terms of kind of rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis or acute nephritis, uh, there are three uh, buckets here. You have the uh, posse immune GNs, and this is the uh, ANCA associated small vessel vasculitis, and um, uh, then you have um, anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies, so good pastures, disease. Um, and then you have uh, a big pick, the big bucket, which is the immune complex GN. And this, um, we talked about membranous, which is actually an immune complex. We talked about anti-PLA-2R. There's a few other um, uh, antibodies that it can react to. So that's one of them, um, though that is tends to be nephrotic, not nephritic. So it's not a great call for this diagnosis. Um Lupus nephritis has a wide-ranging presentation. It can have a uh, it can have a rapidly progressive. It can have a crescentic appearance on biopsy. It can also look like membranous. Right, that's a, a class five. So there's a wide range that lupus could be there, but lupus definitely on this list, especially with that serositis, uh, um, the friction rub, uh, Ig nephropathy is kind of a classic uh, nephritic picture. Um, uh, and then uh, the various you know, uh, types of uh, membranoproliferative GN, infectious glomerulonephritis. So if she'd had a previous streptococcal uh, disease, that's another cause of Im- immunocomplex GN. Um, so that's kind of, those are the three buckets, posse immune, anti-GBM, and immune complex. And the, and the immune complex just means that we're finding uh, antibody and antigen in the kidney.
0: And Joel, you made a figure that you're sharing with us. Yep. And hopefully... We'll be able to share a version of this with the audience as an
4: infographic with, uh, of course, with your permission. Yeah, no, no, no. I'll, I'll send you the, I'll send you the raw file so you can make it pretty.
0: Okay. <laughs> Elaine is very good at that, actually. Uh, she's uh, she's a, a pro at making in- infographics at this point.
3: It is fun. It's what I do when I listen to the Tiny Desk concerts. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm not sure where on the spectrum of cool that falls, but we'll just. Uh,
1: <laughs> you not, don't have to matter. tell me.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Paul just killing up.
0: <laughs> um. So what's next for Miss Miss Red? So her
3: lab workup is revealing for a protein: to creatinine ratio of one gram. Her C3 is forty-seven. Her C4 is five. Her ANA is positive at one to one or one thousand two hundred and eighty. Her double-stranded DNA was not detected. Her ANCA was negative, and her anti-GBN was also negative. We also got a rheumatoid factor, which my understanding was it's really used in uh, cryo-related GN, but if you have anything to add there.
4: So uh, just help me out. That C3, is that low at 47?
3: It, It was actually on the border of normal.
4: And that C4 is definitely low.
3: But the C4 was definitely low. Yeah. So- and so, so over, go on. I was going to say overall, the ANIO is markedly elevated. Markedly
4: elevated, that's right. And cut C four is decreased.
3: Mm-hmm. What would you? I guess we've kind of talked about splitting up the types of glomerulonephritis. Uh, what would you associate with low complement levels or or her lab findings? Really.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's lupus. It's the idiopathic MPGN. It's your post-infectious GN. Um, and your cryoglobulinemic associated glomerulonephritis um, are going to be the ones with low uh, complements. And then also possible, you know, the other, and then, and so, uh, yeah, so those are the ones that you're going to be thinking about. And with that high ANA and the serositis and the, you know, this is, I think it's a good pick, a good fit for lupus is a likely diagnosis.
3: So but, would your step, next step be a biopsy? Yeah, it would be. And just something I've run into a few times for patients like her, what should we aim for their blood pressure to be before they can get a biopsy?
4: Well, I, you know, I <laughs> yeah,
3: I don't. If you guys run into this too,
0: yeah, no, I, I think it's a good question. It does, it does come up. You, you get, you have the patient all ready for the biopsy, and then you're, then you get a call. From interventional radiology, where we can't do it, the patient's blood pressure is 180. Yeah, and I think that And I think that's, that's appropriate.
2: Right. We've addressed this on prior episodes, right? I mean, it's PR and hydralazine IV, preferably. <laughs> that's, a, that's a treatment of choice. Yeah, be.
4: no, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna want to get her blood pressure under control. You want that diastolic to be less than 100. You're gonna be one. That systolic to be below, below probably right around 160 or less to treat that and go ahead and and choose your and choose your 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 medications. You know, she probably responds well to. Calcium channel blockers that wouldn't be a bad call there.
3: Okay, that's helpful.
4: Yeah, I mean, you're probably going to want to avoid ACE inhibitors in the middle of acute kidney injury. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, it did. T- it took some time to get her blood pressure down, but she did. What use? Get- uh, she had to get some clonidine, and she she was also getting some hydralazine at one point. It was there were a few things that were used, but <laughs> the clonidine did the trick right before. <laughs> Um, you know, not my proudest drug, but <laughs> it did. So work. I, I just noticed that
1: I've been muted for like the past ten minutes or so. Uh, I, I actually had a a question. Why
4: why are the complement levels low in those cases? Like, what's actually happening? So you have, you have deposition of these immune complexes that are activating and consuming the complements. So okay. you you're activating the complement cascade.
3: Uh, So she does get a biopsy. It shows uh, immune complex deposition, and she has pretty diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis or findings consistent with that. Uh, And they noted that this was consistent with class 4 lupus nephritis given her clinical picture. Uh, She didn't have any history of lupus, so this was also her presenting uh, symptom and clinical occurrence. She was started on... Mycophenolate and steroids, so kind of like we talked about with nephrotic syndrome, how do you think about the treatment for the various types of glomerulonephritis, nephritis if there 's any difference
4: yeah, yeah, so we can we can go we can go through that so uh, lupus um, uh, you know th- this is probably the standard that we 're using the mo- the most now is uh, mycophenolate mofetil. Um, as, as standard therapy, there's still, you can use, um, cyclophosphamide and steroids or some people that are still using that. And that's going to end, and, uh, mycophenolate was, it was an equivalency trial. And I think it was a little bit better, but largely, largely equivalent. And there's, you know, reasonable people disagree on which one, which drug to start. And so that's, and that's going to be, uh, standard therapy for stage three, stage four, uh, where you use it for stage first, can be not stage grade these world health organization's uh pathologic findings in lupus um for 3 and 4 and if we use it for 5 i don't think it's so effective in 5 which is a membranous type picture um but for this patient clearly uh is the is the right therapy um other possible diagnoses that cause this acute gn so iga nephropathy can cause this um and there, it's a little bit less clear what to do. The standard move has been steroids, um, but there's been a, a couple of studies that have found uh, not that they're not very effective. Um, and so I think the enthusiasm for treating IgA with steroids has kind of waned to some degree. Infectious GN, that's self-resolving. You don't need to be specific, you know, no specific treatment. So this is going to be your post-strep or your patient who has endocarditis, like treat the primary infection, as that gets better, this should also resolve. Not always, but mostly. Um, The ANCA-associated GNs, So this was um, classically treated with um, uh, uh, steroids and um, uh, cyclophosphamide and um, plasma exchange. And uh, there was a large trial done uh, called PEXFIS, which showed no improvement with uh, high-dose steroids or no improvement with plasma exchange. And so those therapies are going on the way. We're going with lower dosing of, lower doses of steroids. And oftentimes now uh, we're using uh, rituximab in those situations and that has worked out real well. And I've had good luck with that with my patients. Uh, good pastures. This is the antibodies to the anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies. And those, but this is a still a case where the standard of care is to use plasma exchange to remove the antibodies, and then um, cyclophosphamide or rituximab to prevent the pre- reproduction of those. Do we go through all of them? I think so. Okay, Elena, did you?
0: No, I think that was it.
4: Yeah, in the in the end, these diseases, these are all of these are rare diseases. Right. I mean, you know, except for lupus, lupus is the only one that's going to, you're going to be coming across, uh, frequently. Um, and I guess infectious GM we see, uh, more than we'd like, especially with the opioid epidemic. Um, and it's the, t- it's the type of, uh, disease that you want to take a look at the most current guidelines at the time that you treat it and mm-hmm. make sure you're not behind because <laughs> you're just, you're just not treat you're just not treating these things. At least I'm not treating these things sure. enough or often enough okay. or I'm uh, treating them just as often as I should be.
3: And do they? <laughs> do people with lupus nephritis usually have other symptoms of the lupus or other findings? I guess you were talking about her so I just wasn't sure. Yeah,
4: I, I, I would common. say kind of fifty-fifty. A lot of patients will have you know so, you know uh, uh, not uh, extra renal manifestations of their lupus. You know, a lot of times it's kind of your typical. I've got arthritis or I've got rash or I'm losing my hair or I have shortness of breath. You know, some kind of you know pleurisy. Um, But, uh, and other times they're like, no, it's just renal limited. I just, I'll have his kidney findings. Okay.
3: They tell you that. (laughs) Yeah.
4: They say, doctor, this is renal limited lupus. Why are you asking me those questions? (laughs) (laughs) Very sophisticated Uh, clinic.
0: (laughs) I think we are out of time. We have gone through a ton. I actually feel, I feel like this is the clearest it's ever been in my life. Uh, These... Nephrotic, yeah. syndrome, nephrotic syndrome, nephritic uh, syndrome. This is—it's it, a heavy lift, but I think fortunately, the most of what's within our domain, you've told us what we can order, the basics of management. We're not going to be the one deciding on like the cyclophosphamide. or oh my God! What dose of steroids?
4: I, I, absolutely, absolutely, right? Like that's way beyond what any internist should be asked. Though, don't leave the ABIM. I'm sure finds that to be fair game. Fair game for yeah. you to be picking out the dose of cyclophosphamide, right? And, but, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. And, and you, you know, you should be aware of the most le- recent data on whether rituximab or cyclophosphamide is really the superior medication. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what would you say, Joel, if you had to pick two or three things that you wanted people to remember from this, yeah. what would those be? Yeah.
4: So, uh, the, bi- the big picture is, is check the UA and don't ignore the heavy proteinuria right that's a finding that it just it's inexcusable if you let that pass without giving it a second thought right and if it's a patient who has diabetes that's usually the cause but take a look at back at some previous protein areas. did they have you know 30 30 30 and now they have 500 oh maybe you should take a look at that and and quantify the proteinuria with a protein to creatinine ratio or an albumin to creatinine ratio or a 24 hour choose your weapon they're all going to be fine <laughs> right um and, you know, when that, when it goes off the scale, when you get greater than two grams in 24 hours, you're going to want to, you're going to want to proceed with at least a nephrology consult and possibly, a, and possibly a biopsy. Uh, the new exciting thing in nephrotic syndrome is going to be this anti PLA 2R in membranous. It's good for diagnosis, it's good for prognosis, it's good for monitoring treatment. It comes back if the drug, if the disease is going to relapse, the antibodies come back a few months before. Like it's just a it's exactly everything you'd want in a marker. It really is remarkable how good that works. And then, you know, in minimal change disease, it's the same story as with kids, is that steroids work really well, um, puts people into put people in remission. But you get some patients, especially with a focal segmental glomerosclerosis or with diabetes, where you're not going to be able to get them in remission, and they're going to have to live with their proteinuria. Those patients you're going to manage with loop diuretics. You want to get them on statins. If their albumin is particularly low, you should consider anticoagulation. And there's actually, there's a good website uh, through the U, uh, University of North Carolina, and they have a calculator similar to like the uh, the CHADS Calculator and the vast calculator tells you whether what your risk of bleeding is and what your risk of uh, thrombosis is with nephronic syndrome. And I, it's a great kind of joint decision making type of thing that you can do in the clinic with the patient. Say, well, here's what we're dealing with. And this is the risk. And, you know, how do you want to handle this? And, uh, patients like that. If you're facing a patient that has a more kind of a, a more acute picture, patient was losing kidney function, right? So uh, rapidly progressive. They have high blood pressure, hematuria. Uh, and and renal failure got a nephritic picture again. Those patients are going to need a biopsy. That's where you're going to make your diagnosis. You can sometimes make a diagnosis with uh, an ankle level that can be positive. Get that positive immune GN just from a serologic, but in most cases you're going to have a you're going to have tissue to make that diagnosis, and you'll have a nephrologist w- holding your hand or screaming along with you, depending on how frightening it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, I summarized it up, but you know, you know but you know, that's kind of what you're looking at. All right. yeah. We will fade to black.
2: <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right, classic. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: That's right, Paul, because we are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Beth garbs Garbitelli on Twitter, Madison Maddog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Man Jew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
0: And I would like to remind you that you can claim CME credit for this episode at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. You can just sign up for a free account. Also, I wanted to thank Tima Karganov for working on our website, Claire Morgan of Nodderly for editing our audio, and Stuart Brigham for devising our wonderful theme music that you hear playing right now. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
3: Elena Gibson here.
0: That's
2: all. And, and, And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
1: Goodbye, Paul.
0: Pa- Paul, I have a complimentary pick of the week, and I this was not planned, but uh, this is I I have been spending a lot of time outside building a treehouse for my kids. It was a gigantic project that my fortunately my father in law is a is a real adult with real tools and uh, walked <laughs> me through it. But uh, we were forced to stop working together because of you know, COVID related reasons, and I ended up doing a fair amount of it uh, on my own. But it was actually quite enjoyable. And uh feels good to just be like building things, being outside, not thinking about uh, – taking a break from all the screens Is was the biggest yes. thing. So I uh, highly recommend that. Get outside and build something. Work on your house. Build <laughs> but it's a house not even a tree kids. house that you built. It's <laughs> not. It's not a tree house. It's, no. a, it's a clubhouse that is very close to a tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah, you need to post pictures so, of that. A shed. it is a shed that it's you a it's a shed on post, stilts.
0: I will post a picture of it. it. we're gonna be connecting it to the tree. don't don't worry about it. it's not. It's fantastic. It, has, it looks great, <laughs> yeah, all right.